Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is The Great Birth Rebellion. You can subscribe to our podcast from your favorite podcast platform and also to our mailing list. For those on our mailing list, we'll email out the reference list and some full text research articles from every episode. So join now at melaniethemidwife.com. Hello and welcome to The Great Birth Rebellion podcast. You're with me, Melanie Jackson and B. And today on this episode, we are talking about the medicalization spectrum and care providers and models of care and how and who you can engage with in the maternity care system to get the best care that aligns with your personal philosophy. Hello, B. How are you today? I am good. I'm excited about this because uh, I speak to so many people so often it comes back to this. You know, in Australia, we know the two most important impacts on your birth outcomes are the people that you choose to provide you with care and where you choose to birth. So I am, I think this is going to be so great to have out there for the world because so many people just go by what their family and friends have had, or they go by what the GP tells them at their first visit. So let's get into it. Yes. So I want to start by talking about birth philosophy and why that's important and also about the dominant culture in Western societies that we have about birth. So if you live in a Western country, which potentially most of our listeners do, we've got to know that we've actually been brainwashed to believe things about birth that aren't necessarily true but that speak to the agenda of the maternity care system that we've got. So fundamentally, women have been groomed and told to fear birth because it's dangerous. So that's the dominant message about birth. But it's actually not true. It's actually a big fat lie. And it's a medical story that somebody along the years has come up with to benefit their own agenda. Now, potentially some people are frightened of birth and have a reason to be frightened of birth because, yes, things can go wrong in birth, but most of the time for the vast majority of women, things go right and it's actually the meddling in the birth process and in pregnancy and in the postpartum journey that creates risk rather than it being inherently a risky thing. So, if you have followed me on Instagram at Melanie the Midwife, I recently put up a post and it was called the medicalization spectrum. And along that spectrum, I listed birth options from least medical to most medical and where they fit along the spectrum of philosophy. So if you're on Instagram, check out that because that will help make a lot of sense of this podcast episode. All right, so B, the first option that I want to talk about is free birth. And that's the very, very beginning of the medicalization spectrum in that it's the least medical option that women could choose. And then as you go along the spectrum into home birth, 
birth centres, public hospitals and private hospitals. There's a variety of different care providers you can have and a variety of different so levels of medical care that you'll receive. If we talk about a physiological birth philosophy, physiological philosophy basically fundamentally believes that your body is made for and capable of being pregnant, giving birth, and then feeding your baby and healing from having given birth. And there's a fundamental belief that that can be done with very little intervention. And if we go to the other end of the spectrum in a biomedical philosophy, there's a belief that that process doesn't work and needs someone to constantly supervise and intervene with the process of pregnancy, birth and postpartum in order for it to go well. And in the absence of that intervention and supervision and screening and monitoring, that things will inherently go wrong. And so that's the, two, that's the difference between a physiological philosophy and a biomedical philosophy. So for people who fundamentally fear the, birth, the process of pregnancy, birth and postpartum, because they're fearful that something will go wrong, this biomedical philosophy is very, very reassuring because the biomedical philosophy tells you that there's experts such as doctors and midwives and anaesthetists and pediatricians and all these people who will be involved in your care and save you from your own body, from all the things your own body can do to you and to your baby. Whereas in a physiological philosophy, there's a fundamental belief that your body is actually interested in being healthy and allowing the pregnancy, birth and postpartum journey to unfold effectively and that your body has an interest in the well-being of your baby as well. And so we only need to interfere with the physiological process if there's a problem. It doesn't require intervention in order to go well. Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest thing that I offer people around this is to really look at their story and ask them, what's your imprint here? What have you grown up hearing around birth? What have you seen? What have you seen your friends do? And, you know, that's something I always offer people if they want to choose a care provider simply because their friends have done that. Well, look at the outcomes of what your friends have had. Have they all had vaginal births? Have they all had cesareans? Has it been a mix? And that's not just care provider. It's it's a place of birth too. But then looking at your story and your partner's, what do you believe about birth and why do you believe that? Is that something because of the stories you've grown up hearing about how you were born? And then again, looking at what do you believe around the medical system and hospitals? Because as a person myself, I love doctors and hospitals for pathophysiology. I I am still alive today because of them. Like, you know, I, I truly believe that doctors and hospitals are a very, very great thing when we're sick. And, you know, I would look at that spectrum of what you're talking about as birth is normal until proven complicated at one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum is birth is complicated until you're proven normal. Um, and, you know, in, in midwifery we often have the saying having an obstetrician for a healthy low-risk pregnancy is like having a brain surgeon for a headache. It's just not necessary. And, but it's really about taking the time here and going, well, what do I believe and what do I feel safe with and why? Yes. The why will tell you where your story has come from and understanding your story really helps you to understand why you're making the decisions you're making. And I want to be really clear here. 
I don't actually care where you birth or who you birth with as long as you feel safe because that is the ultimate. If you feel safe, your body will do what it needs to. So it's ultimately about safety. And if you have a private obstetrician and an elective cesarean and you feel really safe and that was the best thing for you, great, because it's got to feel good for you. It's not my birth. It's not Mel's birth. It's your birth and you will take that with you to the day you die. So choosing someone that you feel safe with is really crucial here but understanding why because as I said in our intro I would have had a private obstetrician and elective cesarean because that's what my birth imprint was my birth imprint was my mom doesn't dilate she can't labor so she had to have cesarean sections so that's what I grew up with and you know it was always this um retelling of this story that was very medicalized and very scary and so growing up it was like well why would you put yourself through that pain of of physiological labor why wouldn't you just get it cut out even though mom's surgery was really complicated that was still what I internalized and really when I understood that story and then I got more informed was when my story changed and I just want to offer that here too our stories can be changed um so you know there is no right or wrong here that's just right for you Yes, and I love that you brought up safety at this point too because the other thing that we're not only talking about is physical safety. So there's so many aspects to safety. So there's, yep, physical safety where you and your baby are well and healthy and physically well and healthy Mm -hmm. at the end of your journey. But there's also emotional safety, social safety, cultural, psychological safety, and, you know, all these things that, are just as important as physical safety in birth that you might be in a place where you're physically safe, but you might not be in a place where you're psychologically, emotionally, socially, and culturally safe. And so what we know about women who make choices that are outside the system, for example, and this is feeding out from my PhD research, is that women value all facets of safety and that's very much part of the physiological philosophy that birth is a social process that has to occur in the context of feeling safe with the people who are there so that your physical emotional cultural social safety is all held in at the same level as your physical safety with a biomedical philosophy The main aim of biomedical and medical care in pregnancy and birth, and they'll say it all the time, is all we want is for you to have a live baby and for you to be alive yourself. But for me, the standard of being alive, that's the bottom rung of the ladder when you're thinking about birth care. We all expect to come out of the pregnancy, birth and postpartum period alive. We all expect to be alive ourselves and have a live baby. That's the basic expectation. So if the care provider that you've chosen, if that's their top rung of the ladder, if that's the, the top of their aiming, you know, that where they're aiming for with your care, then they haven't yet considered the fact that there are multiple facets of safety. So we want to make sure that you're alive, but that you also had a an experience that felt safe emotionally, socially, culturally, and that none of those were interrupted. So, yes, it's about safety, but not always just about physical safety. 
Yeah. But we really do just value in 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 the big systems and hospitals are the two heartbeats that come out at the end, mums and bubs. And I work a lot doing one-on-one birth trauma debriefs and it's the emotional safety that holds a charge at the end. It's very, um, you know, there is often disappointment if people are unable to birth a baby vaginally for that birth, for example. There are feelings around that, but the big, big feelings are often how um, they felt you know, how they were spoken to, if they were heard, if they felt cared about, if they felt validated, if they felt like they had a choice, um, if they were given a choice. So which comes into all those other safety elements that we've talked about. The other thing I was going to say is that birth is always transformative. So that's the power of birth is that you will always be transformed by your birth journey. But we do have a level of control and things we can do to make sure that the transformation is actually positive and incredible and joyful rather than the transformation breaking you. You want the, you want your birth experience to make you and build you as a person and as a parent and not break you for your next step, next journey in your life. So you can always expect to be transformed by birth and whether or not it's a positive or negative experience, believe it or not, is not hinged upon the actual outcome of your birth. And I've seen women have the most empowering, amazing, fulfilling cesarean sections and the most traumatic normal vaginal births, as you said before, because of how they were treated in each scenario and the amount of control they felt like they had during that process. So it's not uh, satisfaction with your birth and the transformative power of birth is not in the actual end result. It's in how you were treated through the process and how safe and well cared for you felt during that. So so often what we do, right, with especially with birth plans and even to a certain extent with birth mapping is we look at birth as with the outcomes only. We, We don't look at it as a process. We look at it at what we want. You know, if you look at birth preferences and birth plans, it's very outcome focused rather than process focused. And what I really want to say here is if you have had a negative trans transformation but I just want to um, honor those of you that have come to this and listen are listening to this now with um, some type of trauma around your first birth or, or your other births and please know that if you were robbed of that being an empowering experience and it, and it felt really debilitating and disempowering from you the process of recovering and hearing healing from that can be your transformation it can be where you get that empowering experience is actually healing from birth trauma. So I just want to honour you and send you some love and just give you a little bit of hope there that it, it that you can work through it. So if we look at the, the medicalization spectrum and we've got the most physiological philosophy right down the end, which is the least medical, and then all the way on the other side, there's the biomedical philosophy that's most medical. And the importance of plotting yourself along the spectrum is you have to have a think about what level of intervention are you most interested in for your birth. So if you have a mentality where you think, you know what, I want to go in hospital early during labour, I'd like to have pharmacological pain relief. I don't really want to feel labour. So if you want medical pain relief like gas or uh, an epidural or morphine or whatever they use in between at your facility, 
If that's what you're hoping for and you'd like to have an elective cesarean or an elective induction and you want complete control over the interventions that you'll receive, there's no point hiring a home birth midwife, for example. It's a completely malalignment in your philosophies. What you would want is to be with somebody who's further along the medical philosophy, who offers the most medical care, like a public doctor or private doctor in a private hospital or public hospital. One where you can pick and choose particular interventions that you might want. On the other end of the spectrum, if you're somebody who wants to be mostly left to labor and you know and give birth without intervention in that process then you wouldn't be hiring yourself a private obstetrician to have your baby in a private hospital because that's at the other end of the spectrum you want a least medical model of care which might be so free birth you wouldn't have an actual care provider but you could have a home birth with a private midwife a home birth with a public midwife You could go to a detached birth centre where you'd be careful by midwives. There's also integrated birth centres in a birth unit that are kind of sit alongside a birth unit but maybe have a bit more of a midwifery mentality. And then there's some excellent public hospital midwifery continuity of care programs. And in some states in Australia, you can take your private midwife with you to hospital. So any care option that involves a known midwife that either you've chosen or that you've got had some choice in um, accessing that is going to take you from the beginning of your pregnancy to your birth and postpartum care. So we're talking about continuity of midwifery care. Then that's your best option at getting a low intervention birth with somebody who's likely to have a similar philosophy to you on the philosophy spectrum. So when you look at the medicalization spectrum, you've got to first think about where you sit. What's your story? What do you want out of your birth? Do you want low intervention? Do you want access to high intervention? Have you got fears about emotional safety that maybe hospital might not be an emotionally safe place? Or some people have fears about being at home, have physical fears for their physical health about being at home and actually feel like they'd be physically safer in hospital you've got to first plot where you think you are before you can choose a care provider and a birth location that matches that and what I really want to say here having been a midwife in many remote places is that a lot of people listening to this will not have the all or access to all the choices that we're discussing today um or even some so i have worked in areas where there is only one model of maternity care so i just want to honor and respect that so many women want choice and they don't the other thing i think that's really important to say here so we have 13 randomized control trials in Australia and international internationally that show us that the best outcomes for mum and baby are when that woman accesses midwifery continuity of care. Only 10% of women in Australia and even less than that now have access to that care model. You know, Hannah Darlin always says if it was a pill, everyone would be prescribed it because it is literally the best model of care. If you want the best outcomes for above in terms of even um, decreasing the risk of preterm birth, lower rates of epidural, high rates of maternal satisfaction, but it is 
only offered to around less than 10% of women in Australia, where it should be offered to every single person. Because even if you, and this is what something, um, what I hear often, people often choose a private obstetrician because they want continuity of carer. They want someone that will be with them the whole way through. What they often don't realise or they only come to realise throughout their journey is the obstetrician isn't there for the labour and birth or isn't there the whole time. They pop in and out. They might make the birth, they might not, and their backup might make it or might not. And so, so many families will choose private obstetric care, one, because they've got their health insurance, it's kicked in and they can get it, but the other reason is for continuity. And if that is your main driving factor, it might be worth actually looking at why that continuity is important to you and what that model of care might get you because it it is if you have a private obstetrician you are less likely to have a uh, physiological labor and that's not us doctor bashing that is statistics the other thing i really want to explain here is the difference between free birth and home birth because a lot of the time home birth gets um used especially when there has been a poor outcome around birth, it gets used in the media. And so home birth um, and free birth, often the word home birth is used. A free birth is where you have chosen to birth without a registered care provider. So and a home birth is where you have chosen a registered healthcare provider. So typically at a home birth, you would have um, two registered midwives Free birth is where you do it without a midwife or a doctor present. You may have a doula, but they are not a medically trained or registered care provider. Yeah, and at this point, we could talk also about a lot of women talk about how because they've been deemed high risk, they can't get access to certain models of care that they want. But that's also a complete um, development and choice of our maternity care system to exclude women with risk factors predominantly from midwifery models of care. And it's actually completely unfounded because we've also got excellent research around midwifery care for women of all level of risk. And there's actually a great trial called the MANGO trial. It was done here in New South Wales. And they had all-risk women and some of them would normally have been put into like a doctor's clinic because of their risk factors. And they decided to just, let's just see what happens if you, so it was a randomised control trial. So half of them were put into obstetric care, into the standard care that they would have normally gotten with doctors and not a lot of input from midwives. And the others had continuity of care with their own midwife. And these were all, you know, matched women, all the same as each other. When they compared the outcomes, they actually found that the outcomes overall were exactly the same, regardless of if you had a doctor or a midwife. Everyone was kept as relatively safe as the others. Physically safe. Yes, physically safe. There was no clear winner in terms of who was safer because What is often peddled is that if you've got risk factors, you need to have the care of an obstetrician or a doctor in order to manage those risk factors. And what this study showed is that midwives are just as qualified to care for women who have risk factors in an integrated system. So we're not saying complete isolation. 
We're not saying, you know, if you've got a midwife, you don't get access to a doctor. What this study showed was that midwives are capable of referring and consulting when needed with, with other care providers in order for the women to get the care they needed. And then when women didn't need that type of care, midwives are perfectly capable of continuing care with women regardless of their risk factors. But the more interesting thing was is that the midwives got the same outcomes as the doctor's clinic, but for $566 less per woman, same outcomes, but for every single woman, the hospital and the system and the government saved $566. So if you've got 300,000 births in your country, for example, so let's hypothetically say that here in Australia we have 300,000 births. I'm not entirely sure if that's the exact number. And we times that by $566. That is $169 million saved of tax money, of healthcare money. So nearly $170 million saved by just letting midwives be the kind of main maternity care provider for women at birth and during their pregnancy for continuity without any impact on the physical well-being of women or babies. So same outcomes, but we could save that much money. But what they also found was that the quality that women perceived from their care was much, much higher in the midwifery care side on, on that side of the study. So actually, we also saw an improvement in emotional well-being, an improvement in breastfeeding rates. And so overall, the better experience was had by the women in midwifery care, more money was saved, and no more women or babies died or had poor outcomes in the midwifery group. So it's a big fat lie that higher risk women need to only have medical care, What? What actually we know is, is that midwifery care is just as good. I've got two points here that I need to say. First of all, a lot of people don't even understand what midwives are and we get referred to as nurses a lot. Midwives are trained in physiological birth. We are so skilled at caring for healthy women. What we're also incredibly skilled at is seeing ripples in the water when they exist so when complications arise it is so clear to us and when we give our best care it's when we collab when it's when collaboration is necessary we do that right and I think so often we can you know be seen as oh we don't want to work with doctors I love working with doctors when that family needs collaborative care and so a midwife's role is to care for you and and be your main care provider and then if you need referral and consultation by anyone because we're not just talking about obstetricians can be the only people in your care you know there's a whole range of allied health out there the other thing I wanted to say here that really came to mind when you were talking about this is money and I see this so often in maternity care is because obstetricians cost a lot of money they are therefore going to give the best care. But the research does not show that and our statistics do not show that and people's experiences do not show that. The other thing I wanted to talk about in terms of women's complexity and where the most appropriate place to be might, you know, the most appropriate care provider might be, 
There's also some excellent research about what happens to women who are lower risk, who don't have complications, when they choose to give birth in a private hospital with a private obstetrician. Not only did they find that, um, so unlike where midwives care for higher risk women, the outcomes are the same. So there's a paper that was brought out in 2014, and it's about the rates of obstetric intervention and associated sort of um, outcomes for low-risk women giving birth in private and public hospitals. And what they found was that the women who were lower risk, who had less complications, the ones who had care in a private hospital had higher rates of intervention compared to the public hospital. And also, a co- and, and it's not as though that intervention actually improved things for them. What they actually found was that higher intervention rates were associated with higher rates of complications for the babies and no reduction in, in deaths. So what they needed, they needed higher levels of intervention in order to um, achieve the outcomes, but the outcomes were actually worse than in a public hospital. So this really flew in the face of that idea that if you pay big bucks for a private obstetrician in a private hospital, that you are going to be better off because you put the money in. What this study found was that if you don't have a medical reason to seek medical care of that level, you're actually making it more dangerous for yourself and your baby by entering that facility because you're going to have more interventions without an improvement in outcomes and actually what they found is worse outcomes. So we can actually from the research, put to bed the idea that more money and more intervention equals more safety. I think a really important thing here to look at is what you've what you've employed to look after you, which if you've employed a private obstetrician, you've employed a surgeon. If we look at the difference in training, as a midwife, I had to spend and I still spend hours upon hours upon hours observe, observing physiological birth and then noticing when it's not physiological and when their complication has arisen and managing that and referring when needed Mm. obstetricians are doctors they've studied medicine and they just they haven't just studied birth medicine obstetrics they've studied all medicine and then they've done rotations as interns and um, residents and registrars in different fields of medicine. So they very much come at a sickness model, pathophysiology. So pathophysiology means sickness. So something is wrong with you. I need to treat you. I need to care for you. I need to make you better. That is their whole underpinning philosophy. Um, And that is why they are great at birth when there are complications because they can save mums and babies when necessary. But when they are looking after, which is what this research shows, healthy, low-risk women, you become complicated even when you're not. And I'm not sure, I haven't fact-checked this, but I remember, I'm pretty sure it was Hannah Darlin telling the story of how private obstetrics started. So Hannah loves her anthropology, right? She loves her history. She Like it's her favourite thing that she really digs into looking at private obstetrics and how it started in America. I swear she tells this story. And if, and if she does it, I'm sorry, Hannah. But um, that at the time, and we're talking like the late 1700s here, is the doctors in the air, in air, some 
women's areas uh, discovered that the midwives attending births were making more money than them, doing what they were doing as doctors and private obstetrics was born. Now I need to look into that story a little bit more and fact check it. Oh, I do know. I do know about the history of how birth went from home into hospital in Australia because I wrote a chapter in Birthing Outside the System, Canary in the Coal Mine book, and it was about where, you know, birth in Australia. At the beginning, I did a history section. And actually, in Australia, because we're a very young country, we didn't start with an obstetric history. So there was obviously the Indigenous population and the Aboriginal population had a whole rich birth culture, which has not been very well documented for our benefit, for the Western benefit. But if we think about how the colonisers birthed, it was at home. And then the only reason why birth started moving into hospitals was actually um, during the Depression, after the war, uh, there was incredible poverty. And so the living conditions of people here got really poor. And what they could see was is that actually women shouldn't be giving birth at home anymore because they actually don't have the right sanitation or nutrition to be doing it at home. So they made these maternity hospitals that were predominantly for lower socioeconomic people who had poor living conditions. And the idea was that they could come to this hospital, it was clean, they would be fed, there'd be less infection, they could give birth there, they'd be cared for, and then they would send them back home. The intention of those hospitals was not to improve birth outcomes. And in fact, some of the research that was coming out back in that time actually started to blow the whistle on the issue of infections and things that were happening in these maternity hospitals and how they were unfortunately seeing really poor outcomes compared to when women actually stayed at home. And so the wealthy women at that time actually continued to give birth at home because they had the facilities. And so it In Australia in particular, hospital birth did not come out of an intention to make things safer for people. It was was almost like a public service to people who who didn't have comfortable living conditions and who couldn't afford great food. And it was this reprieve from that while you gave birth. So home birth often gets lumped into this, oh, it's for hippies and it's unsafe. But if you love your research, if you're about choosing the safest model, this is the place of birth study was based on low risk women and it was publicly funded home birth that was studied not private home births I just want to make that clear but it actually shows that you are just as safe if not safer to birth at home um, which is what they were seeing in the 20s that story is incredible I did not know that that is my chapter (laughs) (laughs) there's this great other research article it's my favorite ever because I feel like when you write a research paper, there's all this jargon and wording that you have to use to make it sound really academic and appropriate for that level of of publication. And I came across this journal article that I was like, oh, my gosh, they've just flown in the face of all of that academic expectation. And this article is called Alligators, Hospital Birth and Other Urban Legends. And I want to read you the abstract because it's the best paragraph I think I've ever read in an academic publication. All right, here we go. The belief that hospital birth for low-risk pregnancies has better outcomes than planned attended home births is an urban legend. 
The choice of low-risk women to deliver in hospital is a result of the dominant and irrational human propensities to gossip, to follow the crowd, and to cling to irrational hope. Rational analysis shows us that planned home birth with experienced trained attendants has the best outcomes for both mother and newborn for low-risk pregnancy. And I'm like, stop it. (laughs) You know, and it's like, so I love the title, Alligators, Hospital Birth and Other Urban Legends, is that actually the move into the majority of births, and in Australia, 97% of births are in hospital. The move to hospital is not an evidence-based move. It's a culture-based move that's been driven by the myth that birth is dangerous and needs to be done in the presence of an expert. I'm here to tell you that's not true, that birth is so dangerous that we all need to go to hospital. In fact, it's a giant experiment to expect everybody to give birth in hospital. And it doesn't, and of all the research that we've got about birthplace, hospital birth has never once come out on top for low-risk women. So what all the research says is you're just as safe if you're at home. Um, and then the closer you get to hospital, the more medicalized your birth will be, and the more intervention that you'll be exposed to with the exact same outcomes as you would have gotten in a home birth if you're low risk. And I want to, this is what I say to people all the time, right? I'm going to give you my analogy here on this. If I said, okay, Mel, we're really worried about constipation and hemorrhoids. So everyone from now on is going to poo in hospital, right? We want to improve outcomes. Everyone's going to poo in hospital. So every day people go to do their poo in hospital and then the hospitals start getting really busy and we think, oh, we need to start timing this. We can't, we can only give people a short amount of time to be able to poo. So we start timing you and then we start giving you medications to make your, make your pooing process, right? So you've got to poo quicker. We give you medications for that. And then we're really worried that the poo is going to be too big to come out of you. So we're going to start to scan you first. And if it looks too big, we're going to give your anus a little bit of a cut before you poo. How do you feel about pooing? Now, when I ask people that, they're like, scared. Are you going to get a good poo? Are you going to walk out of that bathroom in that hospital and go, that was great. I feel really good from that because pooing can be satisfying, right? Yes. Especially if I've had five minutes to do it alone. We're talking about the same systems. Pooing is physiological. You know how to poo. You know how to wee. You know how to birth. Your body is designed to physiologically do that. But we have taken a physiological process, made it incredibly scary, and now people don't want to do it and they believe they need that system there to do it. Now, please don't get me wrong. Some people do, and if that's right for you, great. But if you're sitting there going, huh, yeah, I do know how to poo. And if you've had a birth where you didn't get to physiologically birth, please know it's not your fault. It's not anything that you did and it's not your fault. Because when I say your body knows how to birth, some people say, well, mine didn't. And I, and I hear you. I just want to send you some love. But essentially, essentially, that's exactly what we've done to birth. Yes. And it's, and it's just not true, right? Like it's, so what we need to really, I'd love for everybody to completely let go of the story for now just imagine you weren't scared of birth that there was nothing to be scared of because like you talked about your imprinting b about your mum and how she had all these complications and so that really um imprinted on how you perceive birth 
My mum tells me the story of how she was laboring at home and felt like she was doing okay, but my dad panicked and like sped to the hospital. And she started pushing in the car and she got to the hospital and was trying to fill out the forms and was bearing down. And then she had hired private obstetricians, which was all the rage when she was having her Mm. babies. And they they never made it because she gave birth so quickly. And then she said she just went home. She never talked to me about pain. You know, she said to me, oh, it wasn't that bad. My grandma had five babies and, you know, the, the last two came out at home um, just by surprise. And so never, ever did I have a story of, you know, you could die during childbirth. You could bleed to death during childbirth. Your baby could die. That wasn't my story. It wasn't my expectation. I expected that I would go into labor and then I would bear down and I would push my baby out. And that was it. And so I wasn't given fear, but most women are given fear either by their friends or the birthing culture or the dominant language around birth. And so if you let go of the fear of birth, I think it's a really handy exercise to just write down what you actually believe about birth based on all of your other understandings, not the social language, not the like the dominant language about birth. And then start to build it up in a factual way and sort of go, okay, what's the research? Well, the research is, is that actually low-risk women, women with not a lot of risk factors, you can choose to give birth anywhere and actually have the same outcomes. But then if you also want low intervention rates, then maybe you should choose a venue that's further away from hospital because you'll still get the same good outcomes but with less intervention. Or if you want those same outcomes but you want access to things like epidurals and paediatricians and emergency care if needed and you want to be in a hospital, also completely fine. But it's about working out what you need to feel safe because you will be safe wherever you give birth, actually. It's not about physical safety here in Australia. Lower-risk women are physically safe wherever they choose to go unless you choose a private obstetrician with a, in a private hospital. We know that that's going to increase interventions and also increase other complica- complications. And culturally, we have made birth an event that we believe things have to be done to us in order for it to happen where in actual fact birth is something our bodies do and if along the way a complication arises then something may happen but often the complications arise because of what we've done to you sometimes it's not I want to say here we can often talk in a very generalized state but what we're talking about is evidence-based here and we talk about the cascade of intervention basically fundamentally most women will go into labor by themselves they will most women will have a healthy pregnancy they'll go into labor by themselves it starts at home all by itself and your body's capable of starting labor without being induced and in australia 30 percent of women are induced ridiculous and insane anyway i'm not going to talk about induction today but we are designed most of our bodies will go into labor spontaneously And then our contractions will come to a point where our uterus starts to push our babies out of our vaginas. And then the baby comes out. 
Most women don't need assistance with this process. So I'm a home birth midwife. So the thing that I mostly see is babies come out the vagina without my input. The most thing that I do routinely is listen to the heartbeat if the woman's happy with that. There's no other routine care that's given outside of obviously what I'm watching and responding to based on what's happening in front of me. And so when we talk about intervention, there's kind of two types. There's routine intervention that's just done all the time on every single woman for some reason. For me, the routine thing that I do all the time for some particular reason is listen to the heartbeat during labor. I'm not saying it's making them safer or whatever, but that's my personal routine. If you attend hospital, they have a routine set of interventions that everyone gets. So and that's regardless of whether they're low risk, high risk, whether they have, a, you know, what their personal circumstance is. There's a bit of a, um, you know, this is how what we do here. So to give people an example of that, that would be a vaginal examination as they rock up or a CTG, so continuous fetal monitoring as they um, as they present to hospital, neither of which are evidence-based or shown to be beneficial. And this admission CTG, if you're low risk, is shown to increase your interventions. But just to give people an understanding of what that is, it's like routine vaginal examinations, um, admission CTGs, th- things like that. Mm-hmm. And what we also routinely do to birth in Western countries is we take it out of the social setting. So we take women out of their homes where they feel safe, away from the people they feel safe with, so away from your children, away from your support network. You know, and we saw this during lockdowns where you could only take one person with you into hospital, a massive interruption and intervention in the social practice of birth. Historically, birth was attended by your nearest and dearest and a trusted kind of expert type person who goes to all the births and knows what to do if something goes wrong. That's traditionally when you look through history, records record the presence of a midwife and a whole gaggle and gathering of other people, women mostly, at the birth. So the very move from home into hospital is an intervention in the birth process. So it might not be an intervention that particularly impacts your birth journey, but it might be the intervention. And a lot of women talk about, and the research talks about, how there's often a reduction in contractions and a change in contraction pattern when you leave home to go to hospital. And some women talk about their labour stopping And that's because it's a hormonally and physically governed process that relies on external safety and not having the adrenaline of moving into hospital. When you talked about your mum having to fill out forms, I was just like, oh, like I'm a person who's had two home births. The thought of getting in a car for me in labour like nothing like that in itself is like oh I'd hate to do that and then to meet admin people and security guards and and walk through the hospital car park the the things women the interruptions women have in their labor just I just oh like yes so the further you move away from home and the more you know people are involved in your birth care the more interruption and intervention that there's going to be in the normal physiological process. Yeah. So, yes, so the two types of interventions is the routine intervention that's just done all the time without really a good reason. And 
This is the type of intervention that women often talk about when they say they don't want unnecessary intervention. What they're kind of saying is they don't want routine intervention just because that's what everybody gets. Women only want the intervention that they absolutely need in order to improve their outcomes. So we can do an intervention in a normal physiological process and spin it way off track and make it pathological and make it medical and make it problematic. Or we can put an intervention where the physiological process is for some reason already interrupted and not working well, and we can add an intervention that will bring it back on track, back into a physiological process and unfold, you know, in a, in a safer way. So interventions can be great when we need them because they can actually help correct pathology or they can be a massive interruption and actually create pathology. So I guess something that you need to think about is how much unnecessary or routine intervention are you going to expose yourself to by who you've chosen to be at your birth and where you've chosen to do it. So I guess, you know, a hospital birth is not the middle ground. As soon as you leave home, you are going to expose yourself to routine interventions. So you've got to have a think about how you feel about that and if you feel like they're important or necessary. And it's not about saying no to everything. It's understanding why you're saying yes. Yes. So why are you saying yes to all the vaginal examinations or why are you saying yes to the admission CTT? It's knowing that and feeling confident in saying, yes, I'm willing to have that or no, I'm not willing to have that. And a great and that comes that brings up a whole lot of other stuff like good girls. And I just want to say this here too. So many of us go into our births thinking, if I am good and I pick the best care that money can buy and I do all the things that my care provider tells me I need to do, then I will have a good outcome, which is a live baby. And if I'm naughty and I go against the system or I say no to something, then my baby will die. That is typically in our vulnerability, how because we've been conditioned to be very good girls and you know this podcast is called the great birth rebellion and i always say be a badass you know birth good girls don't birth badass wise women do we really need to tap into our badass wise woman and this is something a beautiful mentor of mine has taught me it needs to be a full body yes for everything the head the heart the gut the pelvic bowl we all have to say yes to something so really understanding why you're saying yes why you're saying yes i want a private obstetrician or yes i want a home birth the why always the why why are you saying yes to that induction or no to that induction understanding that is key because yes. often it's when you have it hasn't been a full body yes that you turn around at the end of that transformation and go damn it that didn't feel right I knew at the time it wasn't necessary, but I said yes. And there's a whole story around that, but that is so often what families and women in particular, birthing women, will regret. It's when they knew at the time their instincts were telling them, you, you don't need this, this isn't necessary, but they said yes for another reason. And often that is fear. So many of our choices that we make are fear-based rather than instinctual. We're the only animals in the whole animal kingdom that ignore our instincts. No other animal does that. And that really stems out to of the messages that we've been told about birth is that birth is dangerous and if you have an expert, you'll be safer. And so 
anybody who follows the social norms for birth, and this is also uh, this is also evidence based. So we've got a stack of research about the idea of how society frames people who rebel against the experts and how people who go along with the experts are viewed. And people who rebel against socially accepted experts like doctors and obstetricians are seen as deviants, as bad, as some kind of, as if they have some kind of interest in breaking down the social well-being of everybody. So actually rebels are seen as bad deviants and people who accept the message of the experts of the day are seen as good, safe society members who want the best for themselves and their families. And so whenever you rebel against the expert by saying no to an intervention or questioning their authority, we're put by society into the bad girl box. She's being and it, and then the intention of every expert is to get you to comply with their expertise and to see things the way they see them because if you do that that's the you, they will keep you safe that's the promise but it's also the lie and so this whole idea of being a good girl comes out of actually following the experts because there's a thought that that's going to be best but that's a lie. And so the Great Birth Rebellion is about calling out the lie and focusing on actually what the evidence says. Yeah, I and mean, we've got to be careful here. We don't want to be yeah. cut off by ARPA on our first episode. I know, I know, I know. That's right. Because right. I feel like you have people that are following you to cut you down. Yeah, so I feel intention. like we do need to be careful here. All right, Absolutely. go have an epic dinner with your, with your friends. In your own find my family. <laughs> yeah, I better go rescue my husband. Um, I told him he so can maybe... get out. Cool. Awesome. All right. Okay. See you, darling. See Bye. Bye. Well, listeners, we have well and truly run out of time to discuss this topic. There is so much more we could have included, including options for women who have complications and who are in higher risk situations. And we also want to acknowledge that at the very least here in Australia, Access to many of the options that we spoke about is very difficult. If you are interested in receiving any of the journal articles and research articles that we spoke about in this week's episode, get on the mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com and every week we email out the reference list and some full text journal articles to those on the mailing list. This is a topic very dear to my heart and Because of that, I've created an online course alongside some amazing women, including Dr. Rachel Reed, Hannah Darlin, Sarah Buckley, Jesse Johnson-Cash, and myself. And the course is called Transformative Birthwork. And it's all about understanding your philosophy around birth, matching that with your care provider, issues of consent, how to navigate the system, including 10 power strategies for how to hold on to your power during birth. And for the listeners today from this episode, if you're listening to it at any time, I'm going to give you $100 off at the checkout. So just type in the code word podcast and you get transformative birth work for $100 off advertised price. And that is where you can find a stack more information on exactly what we were speaking about today in this podcast episode. In our next episode, we'll be talking about due dates, the problem with due dates 
and the realities of what a full-term pregnancy might look like. We'll also touch on interventions that people use to reduce the length of your pregnancy and if these are appropriate for you. See you then.